Hey folks, it's me, Patrick from Outrageous Insight. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Griffiths from Client Advocates. Paul, how are you? I'm very well, thanks to you, Patrick. I'm very well indeed. It's The sun is shining and the wind is blowing and I'm good. Fantastic. Um, for those of you who don't know, Paul is the founder um, and a growth expert at Client Advocates. And Paul, I always start by asking people the same question uh, at the beginning of this uh, podcast, which was supposed to be a live stream, but basically the, the tech gods conspired against us. Um, when you get to the end of your life, how do you want the world to be different? Wow. So um, obviously, I don't know when my life is going to end. So if it's in the next sort of probably half an hour, it's getting through this podcast and then <laughs> working out what I'm giving my kids for tea. Um, if it's if it's longer term, then oh, I, there's so many existential threats in terms of the economy and the world and the environment and social media and oh god the all this stuff Ugh. so um i think what i'd like is for me to be able to lie on my deathbed and look at my family and go i feel optimistic that we are getting better and we continue to get better and i think if you can if we can if i can get to that point where i feel optimistic because of the amazing stuff my kids do or because of progress we're making and the world is I think the world is getting better I hope it's getting better um then I think optimism if I can be optimistic I think that would be a good outcome it's such a lovely answer and I I remember reading that book um I think it's called Factfulness by Hans Rosling where you know he's saying you know we're, we're so sort of swept up by all of the negativity in the news cycle and social media and peer pressure and all of these things but actually when you look at some of these you know, incredible step forwards, like like ending um, sort of certain diseases and, you know, nutrition and all these sorts of things. Are you overall an optimistic or a pessimistic person by by sort of nature, Paul? I, I, I'm always that's fascinated. A, that's a really good question. So I am, um, and funny enough, my, my son asked me this question the other week. Um, and because he's kind of, he's he's kind of struggling. He's, he's a teenager and he's going through teenage stuff. And he was asking me about that. And I was saying that I am, I'm definitely an optimist on a micro level. So when it comes to the things that um, I, on a day-to-day -day basis, my business, my family, my friends, you know, I am an optimistic person. I think um, I try to be an optimistic person on a macro level, but I think it's kind of, as I get older, um, and slightly more grizzled and slightly more cynical, I, I find that more difficult. But I think, I'd like to think I'm an optimist. I mean, my, my, my dad, um, God bless him, he died just over eight and a half, nine years ago. And I remember talking, he had cancer, and I remember chatting to him about before he, when he was dying. And um, he said, he, I was berating him because he wasn't being positive and I was trying to G him up and all the rest of it. And he turned around and he said, oh, you're such a bloody optimist, Paul. You're such a bloody optimist. And he meant it as a real, real dig. But I've always, I, you know, it wasn't the last conversation we had, but it was in the in one of those last conversations we had. And I think kind of I've taken it as a bit of a badge of honour to try and be an optimist. Um, I also, I, it's, I, I, I've been 
really deeply influenced by um, the philosopher and thinker Viktor Frankl and um, his his kind of his work. And I think that idea that he espouses about in any given circumstance, the only the only thing we've got freedom over is our is is to choose our own outlook on things. So, no, I'm not universally an optimist, but I'd like to think that if I'm not feeling optimistic, I've got the I've got that free will to be able to go. No, I need to kind of do something different, or I need to kind of change my perception or change my point of view to try and make myself more optimistic if that makes sense yeah 100 percent. it's fascinating you should mention victor frankel i mean for those of you who haven't read man's search for meaning oh, it's brilliant it's an incredible book and details um his experience in one of the uh, nazi death camps yeah. and it had so much resonance for me because my parents my, my grandparents on my polish side on the polish side um okay. had basically fled from the nazis and in fact at the sort of a, a mile down the road from where they lived had been one of the extermination camps that had actually been wow. built and they spent oh, 3 wow. years on the run and actually you know it's it's so easy to sort of see life being overwhelmingly difficult I think you know it's, one can look at all of the pressure and all of the expectations and all of those sort of difficulties and then I think back to what my grandmother and my two uncles went through you know on the run for three years smuggled out of northern Poland sealed wow. in a container full of water on the side of a boat for 72 hours being turned back by the Gestapo being arrested in Sweden because they didn't have any papers and actually like we don't really know we've been born. I mean, I think it's, it's like the fortitude of that generation is unbelievable. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's um, it's it's God, it's it's good to remember that stuff sometimes. And yeah, I'm also you know I'm a historian by 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 degree and by study, and I'm um, I'm also involved in the the archive of of market and social research. Um, and I think it's really, really important that you you understand the historical context. One, because it means, to your point, you can kind of look back and go, well, really, is it that tough what I'm dealing with at the moment? But equally, without history, you can't understand and you can't appreciate the mistakes we've made and therefore how to fix them. And I tell this to my boys all the time who are both studying history and both going, Ooh, boring, boring history. I'm like, no, no, no. If you understand where we come from, you can work out how to move forward and how to go and be more optimistic because we can look from our, learn from our mistakes. Yeah, and I was chatting with somebody um, who is incredible and we were just chatting about the sort of furore over the Gender Recognition Act in Scotland and the sort of, um, and this is a personal view rather than ascribing it to you, but, you know, that sort of, you know, the, the ramping up of restrictions on civil liberties that are coming with the government that we've now got. And actually, you know, you look at the dying days of any administration, they often try and maximalise the sort of impact and the, and the sort of harshness of the things they push through. And I just said to this to this colleague, I said, you know, actually, when you look at the dying days of the Thatcher government, it was like this. You know, when you look at and history does teach us those lessons and also teaches us that we're part of this wider sort of struggle for for, for rights that I think we forget at our peril, Paul. 
Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I'm reading a, a book at the moment called Who Dares Wins, which uh, I forget the author's name, which is really bad of me, but it's um, given to me by a friend of mine um, who's massively into British political history. And it's a it's a it's a book describing uh, Britain and its politics and its society and its economy between 1979 and 1982. So kind of the, the last days of the Callaghan government into Thatcherism and sort of, you know, going through to um, past the Falklands. And one of the things that struck me about that is that how there are similarities in terms of society back then in terms of high inflation, poverty, a sense of Britain becoming ungovernable. And actually where we kind of find ourselves, I find ourselves now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I've been starkly kind of struck by that reading it. And it's a it's a great book. I'm very glad he gave it to me. Um, and, you know, it's um, you, you always get me to think about new things. I mean, I was the child, though, um, Paul, who was obsessed with the SAS when I was growing up. And so when you say the way the phrase who dares wins, all I think about straight away is, my ambition as a as a sort of pudgy 13 year old nobody shaming on this podcast folks to basically join the SAS and how I uh, would spend weeks and weeks reading the SAS survival handbook anyway I digress Paul, well no no and interesting enough the, the, the <laughs> opening chapter of the book opens with them storming the embassy Iranian the Iranian, the Iranian embassy, embassy. So, and that's kind of that's why that's why the book is called that because he 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 moves from that point into saying that was arguably a turning point in modern British history in terms of changing the way that Britain's English, well no it was Britain, it was Great Britain back in those days rather than England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland before devolution, um, about how Great Britain saw itself on the on the world stage. Really, I mean fascinating stuff, I check it out, it's a good book. I, I will, it's going to be another one added to my growing pile <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> my growing list. Now, Paul, for those who don't know, just um, I wonder if you could give us a, a, a couple of sentences just telling us about client advocates and in my words, rather than in yours. So I'm, it's not a claim, the amazing work that you do, because I've got to just say, folks, you know, I engaged with Paul first on LinkedIn. You have helped me in so many ways. And I just want to put on record my thanks to you because you've literally been there when I've been pretty bleak at, at times. So just thank you so much. But for those who don't know, just tell us a, a little bit about client advocates and the sort of way in which you help different types of businesses, Paul. Sure. So um, it, I've got two constituent sort of groups of people I service um, and help. Um, I help small to medium market research agencies, people that, you know, some really small single operators up to sort of businesses that turn over, gosh, 10 million pounds. And I help them with their growth strategies. So it's sales, marketing, strategy, basically all the all the sort of the different components that help an agency to grow and be successful. So I work with that group of people. And then I also work with uh, heads of insight and users of insight in large enterprises. And I'm essentially there helping them structure and, and um, set strategy for their insight functions. So that might be helping set up the insight function or it might be reviewing it and helping improve it. It might be um, assisting them in kind of stakeholder management internally, or it might be even kind of managing um, vendors and kind of partner relationships. But it's it's a, I'm very, very lucky in that I sort of sit in this nice nexus point where what I do for agencies helps them manage their clients and get you know closer to their clients. And what I do with clients 
helps them manage and experience their agencies better and more effectively. And therefore, hopefully I'm helping both both groups. And I love that because one of the one of the sort of areas of 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 nerdy obsessive interest for both of us paul apart from the uh, uh incredible lego star wars behind <laughs> you which i'm uh, there's a death star folks watch out it's a trap like admiral akbar um is basically um prospecting and starting to sort of build relationships at scale but also with a speed that's more like sort of um you know sort of a farmer's market than a factory farm and you and I started talking about this idea of sort of slow LinkedIn. And, you know, I've really been reflecting a lot about um, sort of how there's a bit of a, a sort of tension there at the moment, because I, I get the sense that actually LinkedIn is being sort of weaponized is the wrong word, but is being sort of automated to such an extent that some buyers are feeling like they're getting completely bombarded. Then others are sort of avoiding it altogether and then in the middle there's this sort of space and an opportunity to sort of shine where actually good practice can win through in, in prospecting and I'd love to just you know somebody who knows the market and both sides of the market really well I'd love to hear your observations on kind of you know where you're seeing LinkedIn fitting into that sort of into that tactic and and and, and that sort of opportunity there Paul. Sure sure so I mean whether it's LinkedIn or email or any channel, I think that the important thing to remember is B2B marketing sales is still about people selling to other people. It's about relationships. It's about context. It's about understanding an individual and an organization's needs and then trying to reflect that in what you're trying to help them to do or what you're trying to sell and therefore help them to achieve. And I think... Um, the, the your point, LinkedIn used to be about CVs, and I'm sure there is an awful lot of CV job hunting stuff still going on, but it is also, it's a sales opportunity, it's a sales channel, because you can engage with people. But you what you don't want to do is engage with people in the way that I think a lot of people use the site, which is you send a connection, you, three seconds later, you send them an automated email, which is kind of, you know, do you want to buy this? You know, it's it's horrible and it doesn't work it doesn't work or if it does work it has to work at such huge scale in terms of the number of um invites you're sending out connections you're sending out and for for me and my business and i think for most of my clients who use this process and i think your experience doing this patrick is that actually that's not the brand we want to be that's not the business we want to be and that's not the way to sell effectively so actually connecting with people in a meaningful way showing respect trying to build a relationship trying to put lots of interesting stuff into your um, linkedin feed then sending relevant content in a conversational type way over a period of weeks and months is a really good way of building that trust and that rapport and differentiating yourself in the market from all of the honestly the numpties who are just sending out all of this barrage of, of spam um, and, and my experience is that that's worked very much for my own business. I think, yeah, you're experiencing, Patrick, that it's helping you build conversations, build relationships, and hopefully some of those will, you know, out, you know the outcome of that will be commercial relationships. And other clients I've used, I, I've got who've used this process are also finding that's the, that's the case. 
Um, so I think you're absolutely right. In, a, in an environment where everybody's doing really bad stuff, if you can do some good stuff, then you make yourself differentiated and you know bring more bring more success to yourself, but also to the people you're engaging with. Yeah, and one of the one of the things that um, that I've told you that I've that I've now got on my on my phone is kind of the, the this three word maxim that I sort of felt like I was working in a Michelin starred restaurant uh, because of your maxims. I don't know if you've read like you know some of those books where they're just like you know th- what they have in sports teams or what they have in restaurants. It's like you know sort of remember these three words and you'll always perform at a high level and <laughs> and and um, you you told me three, but I've in fact slightly changed it. So you know relevant resilient and consistent and I think you have repetitive rather than consistent and it's been so helpful because what it sort of made me realize is that actually a lot of the time that one is sort of sending out relevant content to people um, people will be in different headspaces people will often not be the right person to buy or they might not just even if you do the best you know, ideal client persona research. They might not be the right person to buy. They might not be in the right headspace. All of these different things. You might hear nothing. And then you told me a number of months back, you know, somebody might come back 18 months later and say, the fact that you just kept showing up, mm. you know, and I'd love to just hear you sort of, you know, dot, 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 you know, complete the sentence, Paul. Well, look, I mean, I think there's, there's some really, really interesting work being done by some institutes and some academic and you know and commercial environments so um there's something called the um Ehrenberg um Ehrenberg Institute in Australia and they work and partner with LinkedIn doing b2b had a had a b2b market and they're taking the work of people like Byron Sharp and others and going right okay what does this mean in a b2b world and one of the things they've kind of concluded and I kind of buy this I think Gartner also kind of came up with some statistics around this is that in any one time in a B2B environment, you probably 95% of your market is not in a position to buy, which means that you know, what you need to do is you need to have enough conversations to first of all, find the 5% who are, but for the 95% who aren't, what you need to do, that doesn't mean you ignore them if they're a good qualified lead and somebody that you think fits your target market, and where you've got something to, to offer them that you can help with them. It's about nurturing and engaging with them over the long term so that actually when they do come to the market or they do have a need or where you seed an idea that they go, oh, that's quite a good idea. They then go, right, Paul, Patrick, whoever you are, this is a conversation I want to I want to have with you. And I think that's you've got to kind of, you know, I've spoken to lots of people over the years. They say, oh, you know, I sent I sent three emails or I sent three LinkedIn messages and nobody responded. And I'm like, well, they they might not. They wouldn't. But you know what? If you do that consistently over time with no expectation and no plan to get the revenue, but just simply to continue to support and help and show relevance, then people will start to come back to you. Um, yeah, I mean, it's happened in it's happened in my own business. One of my clients um, recently um, has been using this process now for eighteen months, and they we worked out they afterwards they'd sent I think something like sixteen or seventeen different communications and pieces of marketing content. And I don't mean brochures and this is what we do, but kind of genuine content. You know, adding value, helping a person, you know, helping this individual about their industry and their their commercial issues. And 
having done that process, they they turned around and said, right, I want to work with you. And they were like, well, what was so good about that last piece of content? And the response wasn't, the response was essentially, it, there's nothing about that last piece of content. It is about the fact you have done this and that you've shown again and again and again. And now we have that need. But you have to play a long, long game and it take, it does take a lot of patience. Yeah. Yeah. And I've got to say, you know, I'm uh, I'm currently uh, folks, if, uh, if you're listening, uh, I'm currently getting my ass kicked uh, three times a week at the local gym as I uh, basically learn to do back squats, which if you don't know, it's sort of what you imagine weightlifting looks like. Yes, you have a heavy bar and then you put heavy things on it. Or in my case, you have a heavy bar and then you put light things on it. <laughs> and then I basically virtually fall over, get head rushes feel like I'm going to die, question my sanity, ask myself why I'm doing this, ponder whether this will actually solve osteoporosis in 20, 30 years time. But you know what? I've now gone 40 times and it has basically, it's changed things in quite a slow way. But then you sort of start to realize when you engage with other people and people go, wow, this looks different. Or have I noticed this is different about you? Or other people notice those little things sometimes I think before you do and the key is like can we all continue to be consistent and coming back to what you said about the um about the Ehrenberg Institute mm-hmm. I guess one of the one of the sort of questions that I posed to you in the in the sort of build-up to this interview was you know for small or medium agencies that sort of above the line fame building activity mm-hmm. is actually quite difficult mm-hmm. Any sort of tips or, or, or thoughts on that, Paul? Because I think that's... Loads. Okay, just, <laughs> loads, just give me loads. one, just as an example. And then if you want more folks, work with Paul, because he's absolutely brilliant. So, so the starting point for all this is you need to decide who you want to be famous to. So you have got to answer four questions before you can even think about your marketing and how you become famous. And those four questions are, who's your ideal target market? Who's, what's the commercial issue that they are you know, dealing with? What's your offer that sp- explicitly meets that commercial need? And then your value proposition, which is essentially why are you better at doing this than the other people in the marketplace that just claim to do the same thing. And you can't be famous for anything unless you know those four questions. Once you understand those four questions, then you can move to, right, okay, how do we make ourselves famous? And, and if because you've, if you understand the answer to those four questions, you can focus your activity, especially if you're a small business and you don't have a lot of time or, you know, or money or resource. So you can work out from that, okay, what are the activities? What are the things that I can do or we can do as a small business that will allow us to address those people and make sure they are aware of us, that we have a relevant offer for them and that we're good at what we do. And you can then build your marketing and your brand building plans around that. So that, and that might be stuff on LinkedIn. It might be stuff on conferences. It might be doing podcasts and webinars and all of this sort of stuff that we're doing here. You know, there are so many different channels you can build to make yourself famous. And actually a lot of them these days are free or virtually free apart from the amount of time you put in. Yeah. And I, I, one of the things that I've really been noticing is that actually where people put time and energy into that positioning piece, that mm-hmm. makes such a big difference. And when people Huge. don't, they're literally just flinging 
sort of time and money and treasure against a wall and thinking like why isn't this working yeah um oh we got time worse, sorry worse, just, sorry just to interrupt worse what they do is they do it for two or three months mm. and then it doesn't create any, any benefits it doesn't create any results and then they stop and again all of the stuff that's coming out of um Bennett and Field, all the stuff that's coming out of, um, you know, how brands grow, you have to be consistent about this. It's not just a quick win. You have to do this over a long period of time, especially if you're starting from a from a low base where actually you don't have a lot of brand salience as a, as a business. So you've got to play the long game. Yeah, and I love that. And Paul, we're going to have we're going to have two more questions, one of which is very very uh sort of uh cheeky and that is i wonder if there is something a little known secret about you that uh, people don't know about i can already see the look of joy on your face as i've asked this question you'll be grateful the last person who came on sarah from uh, from fieldwork in the us i asked her what a world full of sarah cotver clones would be like um paul so you know you're getting off lightly my friend yeah know? no no that is like that is like. So, um <laughs> So uh, a little known fact to myself, I sing, I sing. I've done quite a lot of singing uh, throughout my life. Uh, I'm not saying I'm any good, but I am happy, very happy to stand up in front of as large a group of people as I possibly can and sing. Uh, and there is something about knowing that you're nailing a song and that you're relaxed but also completely in control and that you can see the audience and they are responding. That is the best dopamine hit I've ever, ever come across. So yeah, there's, there's something about me you possibly didn't know and probably didn't want to know. No, I I'm, I'm loving it. Um, I will uh, never forget when I took the, took to the stage at my friend's wedding to sing uh, four non, four non blondes, what's going on. And I mean, it was, uh, it was like hearing a sort of cat being, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, messed with by the, uh, yeah. by the local tabby uh, sort of Paul. Um, what would be your, what would be your go-to uh, sort of uh, standard? Uh, like if you could pick one song to mm. perform, what would you go for? That's a that's a really good question, and it's something I'm. It's changing, so um, I'm trying to I'm I'm trying to get into jazz singing. So I'm I've never been. I mean, you know, I'm more more kind of rock and sort of pop and that sort of stuff. But I'm trying to I'm trying to get into more jazz. So I would probably at the moment try and go for something by by someone like Jamie Cullum, but or you know, but one or, or an Ella Fitzgerald. Kind of thing but kind of with a with a sort of a modern twist on it but um it's tough it's tough that's a tough question you've heard it here folks first <laughs> like fusion it's sort of like uh paul griffiths bringing uh jazz standard sexy back <laughs> uh okay <laughs> Actually, just on that, there's an incredible, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, um, and just showing what a total genius, like sort of Cole Porter and, and Fred Astaire were. Um, there's there's this mashup on YouTube of Fred Astaire um, be, dancing to um, Justin Timberlake's Se Sexy Back, uh, that yeah. song. And it is unbelievable how the dance moves of Fred Astaire still look totally totally sort of fresh i'll find the link and i'll put it up with the show notes because that's brilliant it's, it's well worth watching and honestly like you mentioned your dad you know my dad died a couple of years ago and, and fred astaire was his favorite 
sort of thing. He'd always watch Pop Hat. And the thing is, I always used to just sort of like go, oh, God, it's bad. But now when you like hear Fred Astaire singing, when you hear the Cole Porter lyrics, when you understand how that has influenced all of those jazz standards and like even like really contemporary singers. And then you see the caliber of the production values and the dancing and the cinematography. I mean, they were so far ahead of their time. It's it's genius. unbelievable. Just, just just bloody genius. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Paul, then the final sort of chance really is just uh, to hand over the microphone to you. And it's been a huge pleasure to spend time with you. But this is really your chance to tell the uh, what will now be not the uh, live audience because the technology failed us. Um, but the, uh, the, the, the listen back audience, anything that's in your head or your heart. So it's really a chance for you to take the microphone and uh you know feel free to sing it to us paul as well i mean it's uh would be honored <laughs> no, no, no pressure definitely not that definitely not that look i think um look i i i don't want to pitch anything i would ask people to uh think about how they can do their sales and marketing in a way that gives them the the answers and the the things they need and i think you know be confident about what you've got to say. Um, think about your target audience um, and just, just have a go at stuff. I mean, even, even doing something is better than doing nothing. So just start on that journey to kind of do some LinkedIn posts or do a bit of email marketing or go to a conference and walk up to somebody who you think, well, they look interesting and have a chat to them about what they do and, and, and what your business does and kind of do that. And I think... If, if, if as entrepreneurs and as small business owners, we can all do a bit more of that, then I think, you know, we'll all be, I think we'll all be in a better place. Um, so, yeah, just just have a go. I love that. And folks, I know Paul has been very uh, sort of, uh, you know, consensual, sharing, collegiate, helpful. But I just want to be like total uh, sort of. Uh, hype man for Paul so uh, number one his LinkedIn content is absolutely on fire so please um, check out Paul's profile check out client advocates they've got some incredible events coming up um, I went to one a couple of weeks ago which was absolutely fantastic um, and I really really recommend following Paul not just um, because it will benefit your business. But you'll also see, and Paul, you can shut your ears at this moment, but you'll see a LinkedIn master at work and, and sort of by osmosis, see things that can help you. Secondly, if you're thinking or are, are grappling with the sort of growing pains of a business, engage with Paul. Right, I promise Paul hasn't put me up to this, but I just really thought, given, given, yeah, well, that's good, you know. This is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to like be sort of a, you know, coming on on shows uh, like like the Fuse, and then just actually going like, you know what? I actually admire what this person is doing, and I'm I'm going to be unapologetic about my uh, hyping of your uh, of your business because I think it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, bless you, bless you. Thank you very much. It's very kind. You know, no, um, yeah. It's kind of it's it's just it's it's really nice to be able to to help people, and that's kind of the the point of the business. I mean, yeah, I need to earn some money occasionally. That's quite helpful for you know with the family and the house and all the rest of it. But actually, I've I've I long ago realised if I try and help people, then the money kind of the money looks after itself, kind of. Mm. Yeah, and I I think the other thing, and it was something chatting with um with a, another sort of LinkedIn uh you know star Priscilla McKinney out in out in uh, out in uh, the states, and she always you know says that 
often people are quite stroke deprived in the workplace. Like people aren't told often when they're entrepreneurs, hey, you're doing a great job. Hey, I admire what you're doing. What you did really helped me. And, you know, I can think of 10 things straight off the top of my head that you've done that have helped me. And I guess it's also that's why it's it's nice to say things and not leave things unsaid, you know. So uh, no, well, thank, thank you so you. much. I'm, I'm very, I'm very, very lucky to have you as part of my network and to have you. Thank you to come along for me to come along today and and chat to you. And hopefully some of it will add value to someone somewhere. Definitely. Now, folks, you'll remember as uh, as we say goodbye to Paul that um, I'm on a mission to make Light the Fuse uh, Britain's worst reviewed podcast ever. Still on a mission to get uh, one star. Uh, don't laugh, Paul. This is serious. To get one star reviews. Uh, this now is, I know why you've invited me on. No, no, it's not you. It's me. <laughs> It's, it's 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 not you babe it's me it's definitely me you know um so yeah so um please feel free. we actually got a five-star review the other day and i was gutted How disappointing uh, i know really disappointing um and in fact when i say we it was uh, me and my former former co-presenter um alex and so uh, absolutely gutted it was like five stars no like just rate us one star so if you can please leave uh, a review on apple or spotify Paul, it's been a huge pleasure and a privilege having you on and just thank you so much again for your time. Oh, no, thank you. It's been brilliant. Thank you, Patrick.